Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbele, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, go to biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller. Hello, first caller. Hi, this is Scott Davis. Hi, Scott. Good to talk to you. I know you yep. went to uh, the Grayson meeting last night, and that's coming up in our news and notes, but the way we do things is uh, just to give some news and notes, and I'll ask you to talk a little bit more about the uh, the Grayson Silicon Valley meeting um, when we get to it. In any case, for folks interested in participating in the call tonight, the contact number is 646-200-0640. It's a U.S. number. For folks not in the U.S. but wanting to participate, we have an active chat window. You can get to that through biota.org slash podcast and click on the blog talk radio link. That will bring you through to the chat room. In addition, the next two episodes of Biota Live, the next one will be Saturday, 3rd of May, 10 a.m. Pacific. And with the resurgence in Graysum Group's meeting and with the Graysum Silicon Valley meeting yesterday, we are going to have Brian of Graysum and other folks involved with the Graysum chapter in Boston and potentially even Scott and others involved in Graysum Silicon Valley and potentially even some Graysum London folk call in and talk about how you can set up your own Graysum chapter wherever you are all over the world. And I've had a bit of experience assisting with the chapter setup, so I'm interested in that podcast as well. That's Saturday, 3rd of May, 10 a.m. Pacific. Friday, 9th of May, which is uh, two weeks this evening, 8 p.m. Pacific, Ideas on the Artificial Life SDK with Chris Hecker. Now, folks will remember we talked about the Artificial Life SDK a few weeks ago, I think with Travis and Jeffrey from memory, but I could have gotten that completely wrong. Perhaps Robert Rice was involved as well. Anyway, I did mention at the time Chris Hecker. He's working on the Spore development, but he's had a number of other interesting uh, games, and he's very clued in with regards to academics and hobbyists getting into game development, so he's an ideal person to have on to talk about that. And potentially also Steve Grand. I'm really looking forward to the possibility of Chris Hecker and Steve Grand lazing with some Biota Live regulars. And there's a great opportunity to actually nail down what the Artificial Life SDK may actually look like for contemporary games. Now, I have no additional news from the Grayson London get-together. My understanding is that Justin is heading over to the U.S. currently, so I won't hear anything back from him. If folks who attended the Grayson London get-together, the informal Grayson London get-together this week, want to email me, please do, tom at novalake.com. I'll be sure to pass on any information to the Biota Live listening audience. Grayson Silicon Valley. Scott, what a night. Yes, it was, it was very interesting. Um, we had, I think, about 12 people show up. Uh, Bruce Damer uh, led the meeting, and uh, Jeffrey Ventrella was there. Bruce gave a talk about uh, the Evo Grid, and um, Jeffrey Ventrella talked or gave a demonstration on his newest version of uh, GenePool, um, which is very interesting. And uh, it was just a nice uh, informal discussion group, and we're hoping to have another meeting next month, um, possibly a SRI. Yeah, I've, I've had some correspondence with the Boston folk about ideal locations and also um, some correspondence which I think you forwarded over from Irene um, with regards to the actual location of the, of the Silicon Valley meeting. Had you encountered uh, Jeffrey Van work previously? Yes, actually, that is uh, Gene Paul 
work was kind of what got me interested in um, A-Life. It, it, it's just a very simple concept, but very visually uh, appealing simulation. And uh, and I even had given a, a demonstration of it uh, at my last uh, Mars Society chapter, and actually some people were interested in going to it from that, going to the um, Great Thumb meeting from that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually uh, going to email him some feedback ideas um, I have for the project that he seemed interested in uh, when we discussed it at the meeting. Terrific. I haven't actually seen the new version, so how does it compare to the old Windows version? It's kind of hard to tell because I only kind of got a glance at it during uh, the presentation. It appears to be pretty similar. I just noticed that it had some different, what appeared to be different shapes for the swim bots and some different colors than what had been used on the version that um, I was used to. So I, I, I got the impression it was the newest version, but I didn't really hear anything of how uh, what had, changes had been made in it. Yeah, so. it, it, was, it was running on a Mac, which I think makes it, I mean, I've only ever seen it run on Windows, but the thing that interested me in the photos was the toolbar, which I, if I recall correctly, there was a toolbar in Darwin Pond, uh, but yeah. he eliminated that from... Uh, gene pool. So if it's returned in the later version of gene pool, there could be a, an interesting set of interface additions. But next time we have Jeffrey on the podcast, I'll, I'll need to quiz him more. Look, as this is the first time you've, you've appeared on a Biota podcast, would you like to give an introduction with regards to your work and your, your background with the Mars Society in particular? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I'm actually a long-time uh, listener to the podcast. Um, and I, I love podcasts that talk about uh, software development. Um, I'm a software developer professionally. And um, I've always been a bit of a space nut. I think uh, Bruce Damer is also. And, um, and uh, I've always had an interest in uh, future uh, space settlements and colonization. I always thought that was a really uh, intriguing set of problems associated with that. And uh, my main hobby project is an open source project called uh, the uh, Mars Simulation Project, which is a artificial society, a, a social simulation of uh, future settlers on Mars and going about their day-to-day -day activities, you know, going out on missions and uh, taking care of their settlements and uh, even manufacturing things from on-site materials growing crops, that sort of thing, and kind of balancing out uh, their um, supplies. And uh, and it's a project I've been working on for quite a few years. I currently have a, a few other developers who are, are actively working with me on it, and um, it's a very uh, fun project to do. So would you consider that it has an artificial life component? You see, yeah, I'm, I'm not completely sure. I think it kind of fits within the broad definition of artificial life because I am simulating biological organisms through software, but it is more of simulating people. It would be, in, in the game world, it would be more comparable to a SimCity or, you know, a, a Sims or uh, another one of the um, Maxis type uh, games. Um, so it's not really a, so much of an ecosystem, you know, uh, biological organism simulator as much but it is a social simulation. So, I mean, you've heard through the podcast the discussion with regards to what actually constitutes artificial life, particularly with regards to the Maxis games and things like that. And I, I return to the definition that I offered, I think, in the 
what is artificial life biotech conversation, which ultimately says that if a developer calls what they're developing artificial life, they're developing artificial life. And I think there are certainly aspects of what you're doing which bend very heavily into artificial life. In terms of your um, interest in the Greytham meeting, are you interested in adding more artificial life elements to your Mars simulation? Perhaps, perhaps. I, I uh, actually spoke with uh, Jeffrey Ventrilla after the meeting about how it might be involved uh, with the EvoGrid idea, how uh, different types of simulations, simulations of different um, uh, contexts could um, communicate with one another and interact with one another. And uh, we were talking about things like uh, having uh, the virtual settlers um, Having, having like biologists on Mars working with an aquarium or a petri dish type environment and working with another artificial life simulation in that environment. I don't know. It might work better if it's like a social simulation communicating with another social simulation uh, so that they would have a similar context in which to communicate. The ancient settlers in the simulation, are they... Uh, self-contained intelligent agents or those potential yes. for users to be settlers is uh, you're thinking there is uh, there is a, you know some inter interaction with it but it is mostly artificial intelligent settlers uh, the users can basically change settings and uh, you know tweak things as the simulation runs but it, but you don't really jump in and take direct control of anyone and uh, yeah beyond that I, I'm not sure um, how else I can make use of that. And in terms um, of the physics of Mars and things like that, are you using, using realistic physics? Are you using science fiction physics? How are you constructing right. that? I'm trying to use uh, realistic physics as much as possible, but it is in many ways an abstract simulation. Um, it's not a you know, real-time 3D environment where they're, you know, they have obstacle collisions and and things like that. It's uh, it's more of a compressed time, abstract concept simulation where they're going about their day-to-day -day business and making decisions on what tasks they should be doing next. But it does keep track of uh, maps of Mars, uh, the uh, topographical ele uh, elevations on Mars, uh, rovers when they drive up, you know, when their drivers drive up to a cliff or a, a crater wall or something, they have to use obstacle avoidance to try to find their way around it, uh, a safe path down. And it keeps track of orbital mechanics, you know, weather, um, the day-to-day uh, -day position of the sun, and a lot of different factors. Fascinating. So in terms of things like mining or uh, like biosphere agriculture or these kind of things, do you, add, do you simulate that as well? Yeah, we uh, simulate growing crops but it's still at a fairly simple level. I mean, they, they will plant and they have to tend the crops and, you know, take certain resources and sunlight in order to produce a healthy crop at the end. And if they don't tend it well, it will either die out or it will have very bad harvest at the end. And it keeps track of the individual uh, crops at a greenhouse. And we're, we're doing uh, mining. It's actually something that we're incorporating in the newest version. And... Um, so they can bring in resources for construction and manufacturing. Great. And for folks that are interested in more information on this, of course, I'll include a link in the show notes uh, to, to your simulation. I think it sounds fascinating, and I'm sure 
there are a number of um, listeners who would be interested in using it and participating in it. Uh, it sounds like a, a fascinating project with a number of ends into artificial life. But continuing on with the news and notes before we start on the topic, the meetup on the East Coast, it's apparently going to happen in both D.C. and Maryland. I was talking to Travis Salvo last night, uh, and he passed on the details that they're actually going to be in D.C. for about a week. That will be Travis Salvo, Gerald Jung, uh, Justin Lyon, Robert Rice, and potentially, I believe, Adam Aramenko. And if you're interested in meeting up with them, if you're in the Baltimore, Maryland or Washington, D.C. area, please get in contact with me, tom at novelape.com. I'm sure they're interested in getting together with a meal, uh, getting together for a meal, rather, with other artificial life enthusiasts. Additional news, show transcripts. I've been communicating with Biota's friend, Dr. Dave, with regards to getting transcripts of some of the Biota episodes. Dr. Dave is currently offering transcripts for his Shrinkwrap Radio, I am going to pay for transcripts for my appearance on Shrinkwrap Radio because it touched a number of issues associated with artificial life, things like the singularity, various aspects of computer simulation and consciousness. So it would be great to have that Google searchable. And that's the plan with regards to the Biota podcasts as well, to transcribe them to a text form so they're Google searchable so more people who are interested in the topics that we discuss can find these podcasts through the text. It does seem a bit of a digression in some regard. However, unfortunately, all the search engines currently run on text and text alone. So that project will probably cost a bit of money. I'm still establishing from Dr. Dave how much it will be. But my hope is that a few folks that have been on previous Bios lives will be sufficiently interested in their particular episodes being transcribed, that we can get together a bit of a, a funding pool. I have half a dozen shows that I'd be willing to pay to be transcribed. I think particularly the most recent one on entropy and uh sustainable simulation was one that I found particularly interesting and I'd really like to have transcripts on of that. Speaking of which, I received correspondence from Alex Martinez this week who states that he's a, a loyal listener, somewhat like Scott, I guess, and he was interested if we would talk about some of the core issues of artificial life. He was interested in particular in us talking about Turing completeness and also physics simulations. He talked a little bit about uh, entropy and various other topics, which I think will be covered in the near term with regards to the Biot podcast. It is interesting, the idea of core issues of artificial life, and the, the comment that I got back to Alex was that if you asked five artificial life developers, or I think I said ten in the email back to Alex, so if you ask ten artificial life developers, their top five core issues of artificial life, I think you would probably get at least 30 unique answers. It is a very broad field with a number of topics that folks want to talk about. Turing completeness has come up in some of the Biota Conversations emails. If you're interested in things like Turing completeness or physics simulations with regards to arguing it out with other artificial life enthusiasts, go to the Biota website, biota.org, click on the mailing list link and find the Biota Conversations mailing list. We've had a lot of traffic this week with regards to a wide variety of topics, including things like terrier simulation, uh, various kind of Evo-Devo-related discussions, some minor Evo-Grid-related discussions. There is a lot of email correspondence going through the Biota Conversations mailing list currently, and I would encourage folks that are interested in artificial life and enjoy these podcasts to get involved and participate. We've had a, a recent subscription drive. We've got a lot of new members, perhaps some coming from Greytham, Silicon Valley. However, it's always nice to see new people, and it's always great to receive questions through that mailing list. 
The iTunes review, I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago that we had received one iTunes review. Uh, on the US version of iTunes, we have not received any other iTunes reviews. If you think other folks would be interested in this podcast, we are going to do a major CD drop at Artificial Life 11. I'm also going to be passing out CDs to various folk that attend a lot of conferences and want to actively publicize the Biota podcast. However, the iTunes review system is a very passive way that you can get folks looking at the Biota podcast and contributing, as Scott is doing this evening. So if you're interested in doing that, please leave a review on iTunes. I don't really care how negative or positive it is. Obviously, I'd prefer a more positive review. And certainly, if you have any issues with regards to things like the sound quality, please contact me directly. In addition, the Biota list on Facebook has been getting a lot of traffic of late. We've had a lot of new subscribers. So if you're interested in seeing the other kinds of folk that listen to this podcast, and we have a number of previous participants in this podcast on the Biota list on Facebook, you can get to it via biota.org slash podcast. There is a link just under the XML link that will give you the biota lists on Facebook or the biota lists specifically. I think we're probably going to have to start a Graytham list as well on Facebook. Are you on, are you on Facebook, Scott? Uh, no, I, I, um, I'm not currently on there. Yeah, I, I was looking you up together with all the other uh, email addresses Bruce passed on to me uh, because we do have a a community that's going currently and we're trying to get more photos and videos and audio and all that stuff through Facebook because it's a great way to get folks who listen to this podcast involved in, in the discussion in some regard. So if you folks are interested in contributing a topic for Biota Live, we are doing a book giveaway. We are still doing a book giveaway. It's simple. Just email me a podcast topic, tom at noblelape.com, and you could receive one of the four following books, The Ancestor's Tale by Richard Dawkins, I Was by Steve Wozniak and Gina Smith, Ever Since Darwin by Stephen J. Gould, and The Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy are all still available if you'd like to email in a podcast topic. So I think I've covered almost everything with regards to news and notes. For folks interested in participating this evening, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. We also have a chat room open, which you can get to through biota.org slash podcast. I'm currently the only person in the chat room. However, if you don't want to call a US number, the easiest way to get your ideas into the podcast is to type them directly into the chat. Scott, the question this week was with regards to unifying artificial life. Uh, in terms of academic artificial life, artificial life is used in industry, and hobbyist artificial life. And this topic came to me in part through, I think it was uh, episode 9 of Biota Live, I'm just opening up, John Ferguson, listener from, yes, episode 9, emailed me with regards to the unification of wet artificial life and soft artificial life, and he made an, a number of interesting points with regards to whether these things could be unified. It's an interesting problem. I subscribe to the MIT Journal of Artificial Life, and certainly the stuff that is discussed in that periodical is quite divergent from the discussions that we have on Biota Live. Uh, there's going to be the Artificial Life 11 conference coming up in a few months' time, and they have a, a set of topics, some of which have vend into stuff that we've discussed on Biota Live and through the Biota podcast to date. Obviously, this grey thumb, and again, a diversity of speakers come through. Uh, there is this through podcast. And then there are companies like IBM, as Justin Lyon mentioned, Intel and Apple, as experiences that I have had, and obviously Justin Lyon's own company, Simeon Hine. Scott, 
As you survey artificial life through listening to these podcasts and looking at Jeffrey's work and looking at other aspects of artificial life, what's your sense of the kind of current state of the art in terms of artificial life? Well, I think there is a lot of academic work in uh, simulating microorganisms in artificial life um, in uh, biology. There could be a lot more done with that. I, I don't think there's a real strong connect between the hobbyist uh, artificial life um, projects and academic ones. I think in the area of artificial societies and social simulations, there's a lot of work being done by sociologists uh, in simulating uh, various cultures and, you know, what could happen if, for example, a virus, you know, comes into a city and, you know, how, uh, how would it spread and how would emergency teams react and that sort of thing. I mean, there, there's a lot of different ways in which it can be studied. But, again, I haven't seen a, a lot of interaction between um, amateur hobbyist uh, projects like mine and uh, a lot of the academic projects. Uh, maybe it, there's a need, particularly with these gray thumb chapters, to try to uh, approach um, biologists uh, I was thinking particularly uh, astrobiologists who are the ones who study the possibility of life on other planets and extreme, uh, extremophile life here on Earth. I, I know uh, here in the Silicon Valley area we have uh, NASA Ames and um, the SETI Institute, which have a whole lot of these uh, astrobiologists. It might be uh, interesting to try to approach them to see what academically, they would be useful for them for um, simulation. Yeah, I, I think you've touched on a number of important points, and certainly the outreach component for the hobbyist actually going out and seeking the, the artificial life academic or even another academic in, in another field uh, is one of those things. I mean, Jeffrey Rentreller is a good example, and I'm trying to follow in his footsteps in some regard in terms of publishing and the history of Jeffrey's work in particular, but also to a certain extent Bruce Damer's work and Gerald Jung's work and a number of other folk, obviously John Klein over in Boston, has been with regards to, in some cases, in Jeffrey's case and in John Klein's case, kind of on-again, off-again academic where they're actually housed within academic institutions and then they go back to hobbyist development and this kind of to and fro. But contemporary artificial life academia deals very tightly with uh, existing published works and I certainly reflect when I read through the MIT Journal of Artificial Life that there is a, almost an introversion to do with the kind of academic publications that are coming out of the academic artificial life community currently. And certainly communication with Dave Kerr and a number of other people who've participated in these podcasts, I've said to them, we need to, as hobbyists, start sending publications in to the likes of the MIT Journal, uh, start communicating with folks that are publishing collective works. Uh, we had Marce Komenczynski on the podcast quite a bit earlier. I know Jeffrey and Bruce have published in Marce's work through the Artificial Life uh, mailing list you can see publications as they're coming through, and I'm currently writing a chapter uh, for one of those books. So I think there are things that the hobbyists can do in terms of outreach, but it really, as you say, is down to each individual hobbyist almost to, to make their own representations. Now, you made an interesting point with regards to Greytham as a kind of organized collective and a means of uh, outreach with regards to uh, academics coming along to Greytham meetings and, and things like that. Ideally, when we have Brian 
in the podcast next Saturday, we can talk a little bit more about that. And certainly, I'm not sure if you heard my uh, recent chat with Brian, but that was something I raised with him as well, that if you have a, a situation at a Greytham meeting where only 50% of the folks attending the Greytham meeting are actually artificial life developers, the curious thing is, what are the other 50% doing and how can they benefit from what the artificial life developers, be they academics or hobbyists, are, are creating currently? I think the potential for collaboration is something that can only come through uh, a dialogue which the likes of Graytham are ideally suited for. But certainly the experiences with regards to Biota and trying to form collaborations has always been a little haphazard. I mean, currently the Evo grid is the, uh, is the, the current topic of, of discussion in this regard with regards to collaboration. What's your sense in terms of... You've, you've mentioned something to do with the kind of uh, academic artificial life versus the hobbyist. What's your understanding of kind of distinctions of style and history with regards to these two groups? Well, I've read a, a few different papers on um, academic uh, social simulations, actual scientific uh, research papers, and I have to admit, I, personally, I, I don't know a whole lot about academic uh, sociology. Um, I, I kind of uh, just uh, do a lot of my stuff kind of off the cuff and not, you know, it, it's not doesn't have a proper academic background in that. Uh, and a lot of it just goes way over my head. So I would have a hard time knowing exactly uh, for the stuff that I do, what would actually be useful, what changes I could make would be uh, useful for any kind of uh, academic study utilizing my software. And um, I, I think it, there would be great value in simply having informal discussions with academics and getting an idea between them and us what we could actually do to help each other out. I haven't really considered uh, publishing any uh, papers uh, on my project. Uh, truthfully, I don't know if I even know where to get started with that. But I bet a lot of the stuff that I work on and that a lot of other artificial intelligent or artificial uh, life projects work on would be a, a lot of the techniques, a lot of the styles of simulation, and and I think they would be of great value to academic researchers, even if the project itself isn't. But I think we're kind of we kind of have a communication block that we need to try to uh, rectify. So that's a very interesting point, particularly with regards to academic publication. I mean, my feeling uh, is that whilst, and if you look at the MIT Artificial Life Journal, it is of a very particular style. But broader engineering and to a certain extent computer science and to uh, even <laughs> even lesser extent uh, sociological and philosophical treaties with regards to the simulation, the styles tend to be relatively easy to integrate one's own style with if you spend a bit of time reading a few papers. And certainly when I was talking with Dave Kerr about him publishing some of his work, uh, we went through... Here's the general style associated, for example, with the MIT Journal of Artificial Life. Here's the style associated with, you know, something that IEEE would publish. Here's the style associated with, you know, a chapter in an academic book. I mean, I think the styles, if you look at them in a... It, it's difficult when you come to it from a hobbyist perspective because there is an almost a humbleness that one has as a hobbyist. You know, who would really be interested in this? Or, you know, how, how would it all fit together? But when you look at a lot of the academic publications, a lot of the stuff that they are working on is, 
in some regard, only a, a small subset of what a lot of the hobbyist artificial life developers have been working on for a far longer period of time. So some of that is artificial in some regard. I think the issues with regards to writing for particular publications and working out a particular style is something which you know maybe some people are more receptive to than others, but they're pretty well defined. What interested me from uh, my initial experiences, particularly with regards to IEEE, but also with, with other publications, is how hungry these publications are for any kind of work. And the beauty of the artificial life hobbyist is that we have an immediate novelty that a majority of the people that are uh, looking to be published don't have. I found this uh, most recently with the uh, book I'm writing a chapter for currently. I was the only non-academic out of 99 applications. So immediately I had something which all the other folk who were submitting publications didn't have. Um, well, I don't want to say real world experience, but there was something that was distinctly different between what I offered in terms of my experience set and what I was describing versus someone who had run a particular simulation. And what particularly if you work in open source as you do, what you fail to appreciate is that a lot of these academic projects aren't actually open source. There's no, I mean, some of them, they have rigorous source and others don't. And the ones that don't have rigorous source still get published. So we have degrees of strengths and benefits as hobbyists, particularly open source hobbyists, that a number of the academics that get published don't have. Namely, we have a legacy of writing stable software that's used by hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And we also have a legacy with regards to um, long-term application that a lot of these academic projects don't have. So right off the bat, writing as an artificial life hobbyist, you already have advantages in that regard. And it's quite interesting because when you start looking at all the positives that you get from hobbyist artificial life development, particularly with regards to academic publication, Really, a lot of the um, concerns that one may have with regards to the novelty or the criticism or things like that kind of fall aside. The one thing I will say, particularly with regards to the MIT Journal of Artificial Life, which I haven't attempted to, to be published in, but they are very heavily referenced. And in this regard, certainly my own writing, I found I really have to go back and think, where did that idea come from? How did I get to that? What was the formation of that original concept? And particularly, as you say, you've done with, with your Mars simulation, if you come to things a priori, if you come to things just sitting there and say, oh, this will work, maybe I'll try this out or what have you, without any particular background, I mean, I think a lot of the hobbyist development is based in fundamentally problems that you have a few tools to solve, but you need to create a quite large and new tool set in order to solve all the problems that you face. And that component is actually where the interest and novelty can lie in terms of writing these kind of uh, academic publications. So what I've said um, for, well, at least the past two years through this podcast and also through folks that have corresponded with me for longer periods is that artificial life hobbyists need to seriously consider any form of publication. Now, another point that you made, Scott, which I found interesting, was the, and you didn't make it explicitly, but if I can turn it in this direction, the lack of kind of popular generalist publication associated with what we do. Um, and in talking about the uh, academic publications, you know, that's a particular group. That's at best students and at worst postdoctoral in some regard. But there is a kind of greater hunger 
for generalist information with regards to artificial life and also with regards to simulation. And this is even more chronic in some regard with the artificial intelligence community, particularly game artificial intelligence. I mean, this is something that has basically digressed for, you know, 15 years through lack of popular, popular publication and discussion. This is one of these fascinating things when you look at closed versus open. Well, if you have closed, then you have the kind of iterations that are seen in kind of game AI versus open right. where you can actually have feedback and contribution and movements in particular directions. So I think as artificial life developers, particularly hobbyists, there are many modes that we can publish in terms of getting information out online, getting you know, users and folks interested. In terms of your own development, can you talk a little bit about online resources that you used? Did you download existing open source projects? I mean, what was your background with regards to this, Scott? First started this was actually back when I was first learning Java, and this, this program's all done in the Java programming language. And I was kind of using it as a mechanism to teach myself uh, the language. And uh, when I first put it out on, um, on uh, SourceForge, which is a, a popular hosting site for open source projects, um, it was just a small little kernel, you know, just a, like one feature, a, a map that you could um, browse around on. And I found by just doing kind of a every few months doing an iterative release where you just take, you know, a feature and add to it that, um, that you can really build up something impressive before too long, if, as long as you don't try to bite off more than you can chew on it. As resources, I got a lot of stuff uh, – a lot of stuff actually from uh, NASA websites and, and uh, internet resources, uh, maps and all sorts of information. It's uh, publicly available. And I made use of a lot of different uh, libraries and tool sets uh, from other open source programs or projects. And of course, just the feedback from uh, users has been great. I mean, a lot of ideas I would have never thought of uh, or given priority to that people have wanted that I think have had a great effect on the project. And, of course, those who have gone on to uh, develop on it as well have come up with things that I wouldn't have uh, thought of or if described to me, I wouldn't have really thought where it would be that impressive, but they ended up being kind of centerpieces of it. So, so did you um, document this process as you were going? Is there a record of these experiences? At all? Um, yeah, not not really like a, a journal or a blog sort of uh, description. I do have a uh, version uh, release list on the uh, on the project website that goes through the basic features of every release and the the date of it, going back to the very very first version. But no, I, I've never really tried to uh, document things in kind of a, a journal uh, or a blog type if that's what you're referring to. So you, you currently have other developers that are working on the code as well. Can you talk a little bit about how you introduced them into the, into the project? Sure. Well, I've, I've tried to make a point of being uh, very open to new developers, and um, I don't put any uh, major thresholds uh, for them to uh, join in if they're interested and willing to work on it. And we have a very active developer mailing list and there's been periods of time uh, where I was the only one working on it. You know, people would kind of come and go, and I would still try to make um, 
I still try to post progress reports and everything on the developer mailing list, even if I was the only one on there, uh, to try to keep it inclusive and you know welcoming to anyone to uh, to join in and provide feedback on. And I think that's helped a lot in getting new developers. But uh, yeah, we we just uh, discuss things, and um, I try to be very open uh, for all different ideas. Um, that people have, and they they have a lot of really excellent ideas. And in terms of the diversity of developers, are they geographically diverse? Do they come from a wide variety of professions, ages, this kind of stuff? Yeah, for the most part, we've um, had uh, we currently have two developers in Europe right now, and one who's a European who's currently in India. And we were kind of making a, a joke that the sun never sets on our developer community, um, but. Yeah, we uh, some of them are uh, students, and uh, some of them are uh, are professional software developers. I've also worked uh, with some people in my uh, Mars Society chapter for um, information on things that they have expertise in that I don't, like uh, manufacturing processes and mining and stuff like that. And I've gotten a lot of uh, wonderfully useful information from people who don't know anything about software development, say, but, you know, have a huge amount of data in a particular domain that they're willing to help us with. And in so, terms of the Java development community, have you had any any broader feedback from the Java development community? Some. Uh, not, not a huge amount. Um, we occasionally, uh, in, in posting uh, information about what we're doing, what we're currently developing, sometimes people who happen to be on the mailing list will chime in from time to time with general Java development suggestions that are often very helpful. And we have quite a few people listening on the uh, developer mailing list that, that don't um, particularly post, but sometimes they, they will occasionally post. And uh, and, and that's pretty nice. Um, so yeah, occasionally we do. I We don't get a whole lot of feedback from the general uh, Java community. We A long time ago, early on, we... Uh, we were um, posted on Java Swing Sightings website where they uh, kind of feature different projects to use the Swing GUI interface, and, and that was pretty nice. Terrific. And in terms of the, you, you mentioned your developer mailing list, in terms of the companies and the, the, the kind of sense that, you know, maybe companies are, are tuning into what you're doing, do you track that? Do you get a sense of the companies that are interested? Occasionally. Um, we just had a recent interesting uh, conversation with uh, a company uh, called Four Frontiers Corporation that um, does a lot of uh, development work on uh, potential human settlement. Uh, they do a lot of uh, journal publishing and um, doing studies of different types of ideas and manufacturing processes. And they were uh, talk and we talked to them a bit about how uh, we might be able to use our project uh, with them uh, in ways that they can test out different ideas, different layouts for uh, settlements and uh, different uh, logistics. So this is the interesting kind of third part of the uh, academia, hobbyist, and industry is actually reaching out to industry as well. And what's fascinating is what, what we've discussed with regards to hobbyists reaching out to academics can seem even more difficult with regards to reaching out to industry. Certainly my experience with uh, Noble Ape, and I suspect it was through SourceForge, was particularly lucky in terms of being picked up initially by Apple and then following on from that Intel. 
but I do get the sense that the uh, open source community is uh, a particularly good area if you can show as kind of specialist interest or something where you are tuning and refining, which seems to come through most artificial life development yeah. in one form or another, that uh, the, the corporate interest will come. The industry will take uh, an interest in particular uh, projects, and artificial life has been, a well, for me and certainly uh, for Jeffrey and for other folks that have uh, participated in previous podcasts, has been a very useful uh, tool to show these enterprises that uh, there are certainly some strengths in artificial life software. But in terms of, I mean, I I get the sense that there, as you say, there are all these kind of frontier space um, enterprises that are slowly coming together. Is this something where you would consider maybe in four or 10 or 15 years that there would actually be some kind of commercial application for your Mars simulation, or is that something that you're even thinking about currently? I haven't really thought about it directly currently. I have thought about some uh, similar ideas, uh, games, with uh, some of the concepts in the simulation. Uh, use uh, like the, the form of uh, artificial intelligence and the artificial society um, in which the user could interact with the simulated people kind of jump into the role and then jump out again. I don't know if that would be something that this a particular project is destined for or if it would be a separate projects or a separate project or projects that um, use a lot of the same ideas and concepts with it. I would like to experiment more with a, a 3D uh, interface uh, similar to what Bruce Damer has on his uh, digital space project. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a good overlap, certainly, uh, with mm -hmm. what you're describing and the stuff that Bruce has done to date. I mean, particularly in terms of lunar and Martian environments. I mean, I, I think you're, you're hard-pressed to find someone better than Bruce in terms of his uh, applied use uh, through NASA with regards to digital space. And mm -hmm. certainly there's, there's, a, there's a clear fit there. What interested me in hearing you talk is the... Uh, kind of target potential, and I think uh, the game space is one that a number of artificial life developers consider quite strongly. Certainly with my own experience, uh, it's quite impressive the uh, diversity of industries that have uh, some kind of interest in, in artificial life. You mentioned uh, mining, uh, and earlier on you mentioned to a certain extent agriculture, do you think these are simulation components that you could take out of the Martian simulation and make them applicable to uh, to Earth simulation for mining and agriculture? Oh, sure. I, I, I'm sure uh, we could use a lot of the same techniques and ideas. I mean, some of the things we're working on are very particular to the environment uh, of, of Mars, and some of them are scaled down to the limited technological capability of these uh, first people uh, in a Martian settlement. I mean, one of the advantages of doing a social simulation uh, in this context is that you're dealing with a relatively small number of people. So you can kind of simulate an entire world, but just a very limited number of people. Uh, whereas if you do Earth, you would have to limit yourself to a, like a small community, you know, to make it uh, computationally um, possible. Or do the, you know, a much larger community, but at a very, very abstract level. So you mentioned going and talking to folks in the Mars Society with regards to ideas of mining and things like that. Can you describe a little bit about the kind of 
abstract simulation methodology that you take along to that kind of discussion? I mean, obviously, when you talk to someone who, is, who has a mining background, their experience with regards to mining is very rich. What kind of questions do you ask them in order to uh, establish how to how to write a specific simulation? Right. Well, I tried to uh, provide the context in which the simulation is built, the, the very basic things, you know, the limits to what we'll, we'll be able to work with. Uh, manufacturing was a big thing recently where we basically had lists of all these manufacturing batch processes with uh, resource and inputs and resource outputs, you know, uh, parts and equipment and such. Um, and basically, I um, talked to my friend and gave him the uh, the basic uh, structure of how these individual processes work. And uh, together, we came up with a list of, I think, about 30 different processes that could be done just from on-site materials, uh, from plastic production and metal production and uh, all sorts of things. And, uh, yeah, and he's helped me a great deal with it, but, uh, yeah, he doesn't know about it from the programming point of view. Uh, in fact, all of these, a lot of these things were just recorded in uh, XML documents, so they're much easier uh, for a person to read and understand without knowing uh, software development. So what you do is you take the XML files and then you have some idea, I guess, of of energy use and process as that mm -hmm. moves the things through the, the various uh, stages. This is what you're saying. Right, and this way you can just load it in and uh, at the start of a simulation and those processes will be available to the simulated people uh, it, it, as long as they meet the prerequisite uh, criteria. Uh, and the nice thing about it is it, it makes it easier for the user to be able to change the configuration around without having to recompile anything without having to, you know, um, no software development. They can just edit the uh, XML file, which, although, you know, it has a technical um, quality to it, is nowhere near as uh, difficult for a user to understand a, a software development. Certainly. And within the next 12 months, do you have achievable goals that you're working towards? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the... Uh, Accomplishing manufacturing was a big part of uh, what we did the last uh, release version. We're currently uh, working towards uh, adding uh, light mining uh, so that they can have more materials to work with. And then the next few versions will be concentration, concentrated on uh, construction, building uh, new buildings within, you know, extending existing settlements and actually building new settlements and other structures. So uh, that's the next few version uh, roadmap. We're also working on all sorts of different interesting ideas like uh, adding uh, dynamic ambient music uh, to the simulation and all sorts of other uh, sounds, um, adding more uh, user interaction so that the user can play with it more and not just, you know, watch it like an ant farm. That's that's basically what we're doing the next few versions, and we've got a, a lot of ideas uh, for future things that we haven't quite nailed down uh, to a roadmap yet, but I don't think we're going to be running out of ideas anytime soon. It doesn't sound like it. You mentioned visualization briefly. How do you factor uh, changing and improving the visualization through the development process? Well, for one thing, um, currently the map is pretty limited that we're using. We have a dynamic map where you can move anywhere around, even you know, to the polar regions, and everything's all you know corrected 
spherically corrected. It'd be nice to have a smoother map system, something similar to like a Google Earth, or actually they do have a Google Mars, but something that you could just drag around. And so a larger map would be nice. That's something we're hoping to do. At some point, I would love to do visualizations of, of the settlements themselves and the, the actual people uh, located uh, within them. Right now, settlements are kind of abstract collections of buildings, and they aren't really laid out in relative positions. Uh, so that's something I would love to see. And we're looking at doing, perhaps adding some more uh, vehicles in the future, uh, like uh, blimps and robotic vehicles, uh, adding roads that they can construct between settlements and having those visualized on the map. Yeah, the location of buildings and things like that is a, a fascinating problem. When I started developing Nobleape around 97, I realized that a lot of the underlying simulation methods that I was using for the biological placement could also be used for building placement in small, medium, and large-scale city simulations. So I, I have some software that you know maybe maybe useful in a contribution um, to what you're doing in terms of how you can generate building distributions and, and optimize them based on various processes. What's fascinating is the amount of, I don't know how one would put it, I guess organic knowledge that one can generate through developing artificial life simulations that are also highly applicable to thoroughly inorganic environments. And I think what's interesting uh, just talking to you is that there, are, there seem to be a number of very clear artificial life-related problems in what you're doing. I think it's, it's interesting. I interviewed a fellow just before, I can't think of his name, Matthias Romans, I think. And he okay. had written a series of simulations, but as soon as they started involving independent intelligent agents, he immediately said, these don't involve genetic algorithms, these aren't artificial life simulations. And I thought, no, no, these are even more advanced artificial life simulations. And I think it's, a, it's interesting talking to someone such as yourself who, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe has particular views with regards to what an artificial life simulation is, because certainly a large portion of what you've described, particularly with regards to interacting with the simulation environment, seems to be, to me, quintessentially artificial life on every level, irrespective of whether you're dealing with uh, single-cell automata or whether you're dealing with, uh, as, as you are, um, intelligent agents moving over a, a Martian surface. Look, Scott, you've, you've given a lot of food for thought for me and I'm sure a number of the listeners, and I will certainly include a link through to your project from this uh, podcast, and I encourage you to uh, actively contribute in future Biota Lives. It's been a great opportunity chatting with you, and I'm sure the other participants who uh, have not called in tonight but will be on future podcasts would, uh, would dearly like to talk to you with regards to this. You've certainly offered a solid linking then with what Bruce Damer talks about in terms of lunar and Martian simulations and the, the artificial life community. So thank you very much for our opportunity to chat this evening. I have a few things just to remind folk before we sign out. We have four minutes remaining. The next episode, 10 a.m. Pacific, next Saturday, 3rd of May, creating your own grey thumb chapter. Scott has experienced the early stages of getting a grey thumb group started in his area, the Bay Area Silicon Valley. However, there is potential all over the world for grey thumb chapters to start. Obviously, the Boston folk have been doing it for a couple of years, and I hope to have at least Brian of... Uh, Graytham Boston on next week. However, the potential for a number of other participants, Scott, you're more than welcome to call in. Uh, and I know, I know there are a number of other people um, who won't be able to attend 
because they had to be at various Maryland things, but will certainly be here in spirit. If anyone who will not be able to attend that podcast but want to contribute something, please feel free to email me, tom at noblelight.com. I will read out your correspondence with great vigor and discuss it through the podcast if you have any interesting questions. If you are in a particularly remote part of the world, I have a, a, a people in remote parts of Australia who email me and download this podcast via dial-up modems. I haven't had any correspondence from folks in Africa. However, folks in South America have certainly emailed me and consumed this podcast with, uh, with great vigor. If you would like to start up a Greytham chapter in your area, do not assume that there are not going to be any other folk interested in artificial life. When I picked up the Biota mailing list about three years ago, I was stunned at the number of epicenters in terms of four, five, six, seven people on the Biota mailing list in specific areas all over the world who were all interested in artificial life. If you're interested in starting a Grey Thumb chapter, the time is now, and the podcast to listen to will be next Saturday, uh, 3rd of May, 10 a.m. Pacific. The following Friday night, 9th of May at 8 p.m. Pacific, we will be talking about the Artificial Life SDK, ideas in contemporary game development with Chris Hecker, who is currently working on the Spore team. I suspect we probably won't be able to talk to him about Spore specifically. I think it's probably going to be potentially too hot a topic. However, we will talk about everything else with Chris. And also, potentially, I've had a, a tentative promise from Steve Grand. And folks will remember the three-part Steve Grand set of interviews. He's a fascinating fellow, I'm sure. Uh, historically and also contemporarily, he has a number of things to say with regards to the Artificial Life SDK. And following then, if you'd like to contribute a topic to Biota Live, please get in contact. The four books, as noted, are on the biota.org slash podcast site. I think we've covered everything, Scott. In terms of your immediate needs for developers or anything like that, What's your project currently looking for? Uh, at the moment, we're, we've been very busy with developers. Um, we certainly have people uh, with ideas and um, software developers who, uh, who want to contribute to that are always welcome. I don't know if we have any specific needs at the moment in terms of technology or, uh, or anything like that, but anyone is, is very welcome, even if Terrific. you just have some ideas or feedback. Great. Well, thank you again, Scott, for, uh, for participating this evening. It's been wonderful chatting and look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you very much.